Tonight I will speak about the spirit of awakening. And the spirit of awakening represents for us a very deep revolution. And like all revolutions, and suddenly we may feel some resistance to engage into such a revolution. If we imagine astronomy before Copernicus, the vision of the universe was that the Earth is at the center, and then all the planets just revolve around the Earth. And of course, many stories of the creation of the world and of the universe were based on that. Also the sense of <coughs> preciousness that human beings had was based on the earth being at the center of the universe. When Copernicus his research found out that actually the earth was not at the center but the sun was at the center and the earth was revolving around as many other planets and the earth actually was not very important a very tiny planet revolving around the sun and there was much resistance to this shift in position changing the center of the universe was very difficult he himself had not too many problems, but some of his followers were put in jail for promoting such an awkward vision of the world, placing suddenly the earth around somewhere, losing all its importance. That was the short for the human being and their vision of the world and the position that they were occupying. If before Copernicus some scientists had the skills to build up some shuttle, certainly that they could never have reached to their target because their vision or mapping of the universe was wrong. So they may if they at this time and try to send some shuttle, then they certainly will never reach their destination. How is it possible if your vision of the universe is completely wrong, that when you choose a target, you will reach it? So before Copernicus, any attempt to reach something, very precisely, certainly was bound to fail. later on a new vision and finally some shuttle could be sent and some target reached. Now we may wonder in our vision of the world if maybe some shift, very important shift does not need to be made because in our attempt to reach happiness actually we very often miss the target. 
trying by so many means to be happy, to find pleasure, yet by chance sometimes we reach our aim, but very often we don't. And when we reach our aim, it does not last for very long. Maybe a, a new companion need to come and change our vision that we can know exactly where the proper target will be, that we can be successful and finally reach happiness. So which kind of revolution do we require to change our vision of the world that we may be much more successful in being happy? The state of awakening is this revolution. It's changing our mapping of the universe in a very radical way. And as many people at the time of Copernicus were not ready to hear what he was teaching or to follow his scientific explanation, so we may also feel within oneself much resistance when we hear about this revolution that the spirit of awakening means for us. being completely afraid of losing something very precious, losing the vision that we have now. But we may wonder that the people after Copernicus, when the change of point of view of the universe, did they lose something? They just lost a wrong view. Not much. But how much clinging was it to this wrong view before they could let go and maybe take a less wrong one? Maybe in a similar way we also cling to some kind of wrong view and bring a lot of resistance to shift our center of the universe that finally we may reach the target of happiness for oneself and for others. So how do we see our world? In a very simple way. There is a center and there is that which is outside the center. And the center is I and me and what is around is all the other beings. And when I organize my universe in this way, it seems that it's very difficult with this vision of the world to reach happiness. <coughs> yeah, just to hear about the possibility of changing, I may be fearful. I'm going to lose something very important. If suddenly I would consider changing this mapping of the universe. So the spirit of awakening is a twofold revolution. First, he will lead us to change his vision and to put all others in the center and myself at the periphery. Quite a revolution. 
and will be just revolving around this huge center where all others will be. And the other aspect of this revolution will be that I will realize there is no other and no self. In a sense, even a deeper revolution. Because if I could try to convince myself that fine to be revolving around this huge center of all others, am I ready also to consider that I even will not be? So one may see that some resistance may come up when we are speaking about this shift of vision of the universe. That the two aspects of the state of awakening, the relative one will teach us to shift and put all the other being as the center of our consideration, the center of our preoccupation, putting ourselves outside of this center, develop a deep wish that all those other beings will be happy and reach freedom and that I myself will do whatever I can to help them. That's the relative aspect that we are practicing through our love and kindness meditation and the practice of Tonglen aiming at this social revolution in our division of the world. The ultimate revolution is that we are practicing with the meditation on the nature of the mind. <coughs> Whereby this practice we may realize the true nature of the mind and see that, realize, understand there is no true self and no true mind. Now we balance those two practices as it is done in the Mayana tradition by relative practice, Tonglen, love and kindness and practice like that, and by more ultimate practice like the one on the nature of the mind. It is considered very skillful to balance them, skillful to establish a balanced mind. In the Mayana tradition, usually one text is followed to develop this state of awakening, which is the Bodhicaya Avatar of Shantideva. The main source for this type of practice. Shantideva was a great Indian master living at the 8th century, and it is said that he was a prince and just the day before he was going to be enthroned as a king then Manjushri, the Bodhisattva wisdom appeared to him and said that he should not become king he rather should go out of the palace, out of the kingdom and seek the religious life so Shantideva left and then went into the forest and started to meditate for quite a few years 
Then he went to the Nalanda monastery where he was ordained as a monk. There he stayed for some time, but it is said that it seemed that he was not doing anything, just eating and sleeping. And all the monks of the monastery were upset with him. They thought that it was the disgrace of the monastery, this monk not, not doing anything. Once a year, there was a, a great gathering at a festival, and one of the monks was invited to give a teaching, or all the other, or the assembly of the monks. They thought this year they would invite Shantideva, thinking that he will be so, so ashamed that he will leave the monastery, and they finally will get rid of him. So they asked him, and he agreed to give the teaching. So on the day he came, he sat in front of his huge assembly, Nalanda was a very big monastery, and he asked the monks, he said, do you want a new teaching or something old? They said, well, why not something new? Then he started to teach the Bodhicharya Avatar. And he said that at the end, when he was speaking that there is neither existing or non-existing phenomena, he was flying in the sky and disappeared. Well, the monks were quite impressed with his teaching, so they started to look for him to check if the note that some monks had written down was correct. And I think after some months they found him and he agreed that can be, this text can be written down and also gave them some instruction to find another source of text that he had hidden in the forest where he was staying for some time. Now he starts this text which is mainly dealing with this revolution of cherishing others more than oneself. And he starts in a very strange way. He said, I have no concern for the welfare of others. Well, it doesn't seem a very appealing way to start a teaching about developing love and kindness and compassion <coughs> for the sake of others. And it's a very interesting uh, sentence. And most of the commentaries are not so very interesting about that. They say that it is due to humility that Shantideva expressed himself this way. But it's a strange way to put that. I mean, if one is humble, one will say, you know, I'm very sorry, I'm not so skillful, I will do my best. Please forgive me, but to say I have no concern for the welfare of others, that does not really seem to be a sign of humility. And I asked Stephen the other day, because I know that he had, he had translated the text from the Tibetan, and certainly done a good reading of it, and he pointed to me some sentence much later in the text, during the eighth chapter, suddenly, and those sentences were bringing light to this first one, and we'll see how, and I think this way is quite interesting. So I have no concern for the welfare of others. There are a few steps in the development of this revolution. We don't start to jump right outside and leave all the others getting at the center. The first step is to ponder or to consider the disadvantage of creating oneself.
page quoted a few lines from Shantideva says that all the pain and suffering arising in this world only arise because of the self-cherishing attitude. The only cause for the arising of all the suffering is self-cherishing attitude. Then he has a very clear image, he said, one can only stop one hand from burning by withdrawing it from the flame. In the same way, one can only stop to suffer by withdrawing from the self-cherishing attitude. There is many ways one can see that for the sake of the self, how much we can ask oneself. I remember once I was in, in Tibet, near the Everest base camp, and I saw a mountaineering there. He was from Switzerland, and he was very sick. He was just driving down to the border, which was much lower. And I spoke to him when he was at the lower place, and he said that he had tried to claim the Shoyu mountain, which is a, one of the highest of the world, and he got sick, altitude sickness, which is very serious, so he walked non-stop to come to a lower place, and he was yet not feeling well, till finally, by chance, or by luck, there was one jeep there, and they got him, brought him to the road, and he could come down to the lower village, and he spent the night there, and next morning he was quite well. So I asked him what he was going to do, and he said, well, I'll go back. Then he went back to the higher village, and then climbed the top of the mountain. And he reached the top of the Shoyu mountain. Very, very strong man, and certainly much determination. So he climbed to the top of the mountain, and certainly maybe he put a flag there. I don't know which flag the top of the mountain, and maybe he had a friend to take his picture there. So imagine all the power which is required to climb uh, one of the highest mountains in the world. It really requires a lot of energy, a lot of determination, even at the risk of one's life, because certainly this man did risk his life many times, even some are losing their life climbing the highest mountain. for the sake of the self. Nobody obliged him, there was nobody in any country, neither in Tibet nor in Switzerland, who said that you have to do that, otherwise it doesn't go, then nobody obliged him, but the sense of self. And then just walking, walking, and nearly died, going down, going back. There are many other cases, maybe less far than this one, where we can see people working very hard for more accumulation of wealth, of fame, or whatever. They may be under the eight worldly preoccupations, which is stated traditionally in the text, and those preoccupations, which are bound to the self, is a preoccupation with gain and loss, fame and infamy, pleasure and pain, praise and blame. When one is bound to this self, place at the center, 
being completely concerned or the slave of this self-master then one is always concerned by gaining more by using more pleasure just to satisfy this self which will never be satisfied at least if he really wants we could give him complete satisfaction for a long time then that will be worthwhile but it doesn't seem it works this way we are doing it and then there is no real satisfaction so he has more and we do and then he's not satisfied now we have organized our world with ourselves at the center and all the other around revolving around but we get even to more complicated vision of the world because people who are helping us in our gain, fame, pleasure and praise then we tend to place them at a closer part of our center they are friends, they are people who are helping to bring those gains for us and then there are people who are hindering then we are placing at another place we divide and there are other type of planets in our world that we place at some other situation or location and then there are plenty many other stars and planets that we really don't know they are far away there is no incidence in our happiness or suffering so we really don't know them and don't care so every one of us has himself or herself at the center and specific configuration of all the other beings around now we are all small centers we are with our own configuration mine is specific a close friend that you don't know for you they are far away stars and your close friend they are for me far away stars so we are dividing the social world into category of people that we like we don't like and we don't care for having as a referring point oneself at the center and what is the benefit, what is the harm or no influence whatever for the people that we don't care we often, when we meet them not see them as human beings but sometimes we just see them as functions <coughs> when traveling in Tibet with a group of people sometimes I've been amazed how the driver for example is just a function is not a human being so people come up in the bus and down and they don't really care and they don't really recognize this man <coughs> as being a human being we certainly wife and children in his life and liking and not liking he also doesn't like bad weather he also likes good weather but for most of the travelers there is no consideration like that he is driver, good driver or bad driver and that's the only concern forgetting that they may just smile to him and recognize in this driver another human being with all the range of the richness of another human being or one may go to a restaurant and a waiter is coming and we are not so much concerned how he feels and if he is well and about his wife and his kids no, we just 
want him to serve us well, that he gave us proper information and that he will be rather quick in bringing what we order. And sometimes we may see that people react, people closer than other people, react to somebody who is dealing with us and we project him as his function. We may sometimes have a waiter who may make a mistake, but actually that does not take away anything from his humanness. Yes, he is a complete perfect human being, even if he makes a mistake, but suddenly we may reject him or get upset because something did not work. <coughs> and the rejection is not the rejection of the mistake, but is the rejection completely of this man as if this man was just reduced to his function. How many times we may see ourselves reacting in this way, going to the post office or any place when we reduce the person to their function. And then if something is not functioning very well this day, then we reject the person. Forgetting about all the richness that this person has, the family, as people that love them and connect it, all the range of the human qualities. Reducing just to a function. So it is also a way of not dealing with human beings, reducing just to some kind of activity. So the first step was to see that the cherishing attitude brings a lot of problems, a lot of suffering. And then the second step is to start to question our division of the world where we see that people we like, people we don't like, and neutral people. Questioning that and wondering if maybe that is a correct view or a true view that we can have on the people. Is it based on true qualities or true reason that we can separate people in this way? We may see that sometimes people are friendly to us or we feel connected for some time and then we lose sight of them. And some other people, they were far and suddenly they get close to us. So the view that we are having in this <coughs> way of dividing, it may be not so strong and we may see that there may be some shift. And also considering that some people that we don't like and we see they also are liked very much by other people who are also good people. Just questioning if this view is very appropriate and is the starting point from either they help me or not, if it is a really proper way of dividing the people. Not only will we, will we see that this division is not very strong and not really based on true reason, but we may question even this difference between self and other. What is the gap that I may have separating myself with other or myself from other? So this notion of self and other is quite interesting because it's not like red and blue. 
red never become blue and blue never become red while self and other, other become self and self become other, that changes very fast. I for myself self, but for all the rest of the being I am other. So I am at the same time self and other. And that of course also true for each one of you. You are self and you are other. So we have at, at the same time these twofold quality of being self and other. And it's even closer to that, I am self for one person, another for such a huge number. It's the same for you, you are self for one person, and you are other for the same amount of being than that I am other. So why to make such a strong distinction of value or concern between <coughs> self and other? It's not something which is so, so strong. It's not a quality of self a food that can be grasped, that will be only in me and not in other. This position that the revolution slowly could, can take place. So Shantideva said, as I want to be happy, others want also to be happy. There is no difference when we reflect sometimes and see when people are dealing with us or sometimes stepping in front of us, it's also just because they want to be happy, exactly as we want to be happy. Every of our actions, self and other, are motivated by this search for happiness. As I don't want the smallest suffering, the other too don't want the smallest suffering. There's no difference. Then he has a sentence very interesting. He says, it is not because my suffering is not experienced by you that it is not painful for me. Now it is not because your suffering is not experienced by me that it is not painful for you. So what is the difference? Suffering is painful for whomever is experiencing it. There is no difference between self and other. Self happiness is precious for me as it is for others. What is so special about this I that I only care for this for myself? What is so special about me that although others also cherish happiness, I do cherish happiness, but why do I only care for this I? What is the quality or characteristic of that? And I really find uh, something very special that I say, yes, this is just defined. It's the same process, exactly as I dislike suffering, other dislike suffering, but what is so specific that I only try to protect myself from suffering and not others? What is so special? The third point is the advantage of creating others. Say that the source of our happiness, and I know only one cause, is the creation of other beings. And look at the people who are mother me, 
how they are, how they are, and look at people who are generous and caring, look how they are. So it is very easy to make the difference when we look at the different type of behavior, people behaving in an open way, in a generous way, which is much more happiness, and people being completely keeping to themselves, closed in, full of hatred and ill will, and those people do not show any sign of happiness, of well-being. And so no much doubt about that. And developing good qualities will also develop a more happy state of mind. And even to reach the state of a Buddha is depending on changing others. Because all the other beings, they are like the field in which the seeds are sown. So you need all the field of sentient beings that the practice of the state of awakening, uh, of awakening can land in the field of all sentient beings, that it can grow into awakening. So advantage of facing others bring happiness and peace of mind now, and that also leads us to the state of the Buddha. come to the most important revolution. The practice of attending self with others. Self, one who wishes to help self and others quickly should practice the great mystery, attending self for others. So it is called a mystery, according to the commentaries, because it was not taught very frequently only to people who really were dedicated to the practice of Dharma. Because this practice of exchanging self for others is quite a deep revolution and then it requires some amount of readiness to engage into this revolution. So that's why it is called the mystery, exchanging self for others. And all the practice of Tonglen is based actually on this very sentence. Now he used something, I don't know if you will be able to follow me and I don't know if I will be able to be clear because it's kind of twisted way of thinking. But let's try to follow Shantideva in his reasoning. Now, he asked us to change, to be able to practice this exchanging self for others, to see if we can consider others as oneself, and to see oneself as others. In a, in a sense, it is like projecting the sense of self on other beings, and projecting the notion of other on oneself. Then when one looks at somebody else, one can see that could be if you wish, I will identify with this other person in a large sense 
and then be able to look at me like if I was a foreigner, another. Is it twist, a shift there of self and other. Looking at myself, if I were other, and looking at other, if they were self. And then play by using even some mental distortion in this certain position. Instead, if you are jealous toward a person that you feel superior, higher than you are, then you will reflect in this way. Try to follow me if you can. Then you will see yourself in a person that you consider lower than you. Then you will see his or her point of view. And from her point of view, you will look at yourself, now being another. And then from this point of view of the lower person, you will say, well, he is always respected. But I am never. He is receiving everything. He has all the honor, he has all the gain and I have nothing. And if he is so great, why does he not hurt me? Why is he not helping me? So by this shift, which is not so easy, but quite interesting actually to explore. So if one feels jealousy towards somebody that we feel has so many qualities and I don't have so many, then we just consider a new position, seeing that somebody we may imagine could have jealousy toward us, and then we imagine being in this position, and then what the jealousy does, and say, why is he receiving all the gain and all the same, and why do I receive nothing? And with all these qualities, it rather should help me. And it is very interesting if you try that. Starting to get the suddenness to move the sense of self around. Not being so much bound, just to this position. The self here, another there, but starting to move it around. Now the self is there, and by the seeing of this person as other. And suddenly, there is very, very new vision of the world when we start to be able to shift position like that. Not that we start to be completely confused about who we are, is really in the connection of developing the consideration for others more than for oneself. Then that can be also practice in a different position, if you feel pride towards somebody that you feel lower than you, then you will practice. You will identify yourself with somebody higher and then look at yourself from this point of view. And then from this point of view, this self-I being there and looking at this other person being down there, Say, well, this person is deluded, how can he compare with me? He has no quality whatever, so what, how would he even uh, compare with myself? 
He goes on, he said, I shall, I shall just take everything away from him. He doesn't need much. I will just leave enough for him to leave. Very strange quality. Starting this revolution of questioning the center of our universe, not placing the self anymore, but being able to place it around, and then considering other exactly as one considers oneself. Not with confusion, but really starting to be able to see their point of view, if you wish, their point of view, and ever their point of view looking at ourselves. Then he goes on and said, well, if you can realize that and see yourself in others, then there is no reason to be pride practicing generosity. Are you pride because you are feeding yourself? I am so good, I am feeding myself. It doesn't make sense. So when you see all other beings as yourself, there is no sense of pride in doing anything for them. It's completely natural. As feeding and taking care of yourself. When one starts to be able to shift this sense of self and other, one sees that is not a sense of sacrifice that may be required in the practice of taking care of others. It's not a sense of sacrifice because we recognize ourselves in other people. Then naturally we can help them, then naturally we can take care of them, not because that although this position is very strong, I am the center and others are much less important, yet still I will do something for them. Not this way. I really recognize another being completely human being, exactly like myself. Then naturally I can do something. Does not cost me anything. And no sense of pride in saying I'm doing something fantastic. Imagine you say that then, imagine you have only, you are in India and you have only very small amount of money left. Then you will not spend it because you will say, well, if I spend it, I will have nothing to give to others. Rather than, well, if I give it, what will I have left with me to eat? So this attitude will be so strongly achieved that you say, Oh no, I cannot spend it because if I spend, what can I give to the beggar? Because of consideration for others. It's quite a revolution. Now we may understand the first sentence of Shantideva, I have no consideration for others. Because for him, there is not this sense of other that he really would consider like others. For him, if he, when he is doing something for others, there is no difference. He's like he's doing for himself. Not this very strong division of self and others. I have no consideration for others. Because I don't consider anybody others. <coughs> then I just stand here writes the Bodhicharya Vatana for the sake of others. 
So these type of reflections are very powerful if one starts to play with them and sometimes very useful in practical situations. And I really do think that it can be embodied in the Dalai Lama, his way of behaving. It's quite amazing the amount of love and kindness and openness, much based on this practice that he often mentions, based on the Bodhicaya Avatar, so that he has no hatred for the Chinese and this very vast openness of mind. His translator, Jeff Hawkins, once said that he was tiring of translating for him because whenever he would come to a place, he would say, every sentient being wants happiness and they don't want suffering. And uh, he was always telling the same about that we all are exactly identical in our wish for suffering and our wish for happiness and our um, wish to get rid of suffering. But one day he understood that the dilemma really meant it. So he said what was amazing, whenever I come to a place, he always meets friends even if he don't know the people. Because there are other beings it completely recognized And there is fantastic power suddenly of meeting somebody that you know because it is another human being like yourself. Disregarding all the differences, cultural differences or whatever. And the huge amount of power that can be developed within one's own mind. And I think <coughs> it is important to understand also the practice of Tonglen that if we give some consideration not holding so strongly in the defense of self and other that that may become more natural and not some kind of sacrifice practice that we really it is at the cost of ourselves when we give all what we have to others like if they were really other and depriving depriving oneself from all this amount of wealth but when we see that we are giving to other beings exactly like ourselves then it's taking from one pocket to put in the other then the sense of the natural attitude developing can be much stronger not if we are forcing the practice of Tonglen. And in the Tibetan tradition, it is always done with contemplation of this type that one can really put in a proper situation, not just this technical approach of, of Tonglen without any further consideration. There is one example of that in the previous life of the Buddha when he was a Bodhisattva. He said that at this time he was a prince in the kingdom of north of India, very wealthy prince, and every week once he will go in the market and offer all his belongings. With much of what he what he had he will offer and slowly all the richness of the kingdom was just given away because every once a week would come and people would first <coughs> from the city and then from the country and then from other kingdom would come just to receive what this prince was giving. So the king from the next kingdom who had uh, 
quote Wa again, the, the king, the father of the Bodhisattva, and was defeated in those wars because of the power of one elephant, very powerful war elephant. Then he asked his minister, said, well, we should then try to get this elephant because then we will not be defeated anymore. We can defeat the king from the neighbor kingdom. But he said, I don't know how to get it. And his priest said, don't worry, we will manage to get this powerful elephant. So on the day on which the Bodhisattva was giving his possession, they went there and they started by saying how, how generous the Bodhisattva was, his prince, that was fantastic, that he will generously offer all his belongings, that he was renowned in many kingdoms for his generosity. And they said, well, maybe they could receive this very powerful elephant. And the Bodhisattva has had taken the vow, never refused. So he asked some of his servants to go and get this elephant and gave this elephant away to the priest who brought it to the king of the neighbor kingdom. But when the king and the minister heard about that, they were very upset and they thought that then they may soon lose their kingdom if the prince was left to do whatever he wanted. They gathered and they thought that he should be banished from the kingdom. He should leave and go away. So they called him and they said that he should leave with his wife and his two child, two children. He should go away and go past a high mountain in another valley and should stay there for many years, ten years, before coming back. And the prince agreed, so he took a chariot, put some of his belongings that were needed, and with his wife and two children left. And on the road, he met some people who asked for the chariot with all the belongings. So he had taken the vow of never refusing anything, so he gave it to then he continued to work with his wife and children and started across a river and then started in a forest. There they met a very old man who was um, had a very hard time to work and then he asked if the prince would give his two children. And the prince agreed and gave his two children to this old man who crossed the river and went to his home. But when his wife saw the two children and he saw that they were of noble family, she was quite afraid and she thought that it's not good to keep them in their home. And she asked her husband to go in the market and sell them. Meanwhile, the prince went on with his wife and then they met a very old woman blind and she asked for the wife. And the Bodhisattva agreed, the prince agreed. And the wife <coughs> complained slightly. But then the prince reminded her that they had taken the vow many, many lives ago never to refuse anything. That they were together already, husband and wife, and they had decided at this time together that they would offer whatever was asked from them. Then she remembered and she agreed. 
But at this time, he said that these old women transform into Bodhisattva Maitreya and then restore every, all the position in the prince and the Bodhisattva was sent back to the kingdom, toward the king and they all got again um, in their proper state. I don't know why Maitreya has to come at this time, but it shows that in the previous life, the Buddha is supposed to have really practiced the exchange of self for others, here in a very clear way. So there are many accounts of that as previous birth of the Buddha, where he did practice that. that may show the range of this revolution which is implied in the practice of the spirit of awakening. One may sometimes be afraid of the cost. Then you reflect on the disadvantage of saturation attitude. You may reflect on how much suffering is depending on our old vision and then consider the advantage of this revolution that will bring a deeper peace, happiness for oneself and for others. Changing this view of the world, everybody is gaining, nobody is losing. We may just sit for a few minutes in time. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.